Welcome to the Herbs with Rosalie podcast, a show exploring how herbs heal as medicine, as food, and through nature connection. I'm your host, Rosalie de la Forêt. I'm an herbalist teacher and the best-selling author of the books Alchemy of Herbs and Wild Remedies. I created this podcast to share trusted herbal wisdom so that you can get the best results when relying on herbs for your health. I love offering up practical knowledge to help you dive deeper into the world of medicinal plants and seasonal living. My goal is that you'll walk away from each episode feeling inspired to start working with herbs in your everyday life. Each episode of the podcast is available on my Herbs with Rosalie YouTube channel, as well as your favorite podcast app. Transcripts and recipes for each episode can be found at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. To get the latest news, as well as fun bonuses, be sure to sign up for my weekly herbal newsletter. Okay, grab your cup of tea. Let's dive in. I'm excited to bring you this episode with Guido Maze. I've actually been wanting to invite Guido on the podcast since day one, but honestly, I was a bit intimidated as he's one of my herbal heroes. And, you know, if we're at a conference together, you can bet that I'm on the front row of all of his classes. I love how Guido weaves together many seemingly different pieces of herbalism, whether it's chemical constituents, heart-centered healing, or even mythology and folklore. In this chat, Guido shares the many, many gifts of yarrow, and then we get a glimpse into what's on his mind these days. He goes from quantum entanglement to the shared consciousness we may have with dandelions, and that is just the beginning. He also perfectly summarizes why I love being an herbalist. This conversation is a real treat. For those of you who don't know him already, Guido Maze is an herbalist and garden steward specializing in therapeutic herbalism and the pharmacology of plants and mushrooms. He spent his childhood in Italy in the Central Alps in a Renaissance town called Ferrara. After traveling the United States, he settled into Vermont, where he has been living since 1996. He is a founder, faculty member, and clinical supervisor at the Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism, a 501c3 nonprofit herbal medicine clinic and school. He serves as herbalist, principal scientist, and chief formulator at Traditional Medicinals, where he works on herbal teas, supplements, bitters, and tonics. He is a founding member of the Rail Yard Apothecary in Burlington, Vermont, where he works as part of a collaborative clinical practice. He's the author of The Wild Medicine Solution, Healing with Aromatic Bitter and Tonic Plants, as well as the book DIY Bitters. Well, hello, Guido. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, Rosalie. It's really great to be here, and um, I thank you as well. Wow, well, I'm really looking forward to this. It's been a couple of years since we've hung out and I'm excited to hear what's going on in your herbal life. And first, I'd love to start way back in the beginning though and what mm. brought the plant world to you. Well, I mean, it, I think it took me a little while during my teenage years to figure out that plants had actually been a really big part of my life and herbal medicine specifically when I was growing up as a as really a little kid. And then I missed that. And when I realized that I missed it and I realized why I missed it, then it became pretty clear that that's sort of what I wanted to do. And as a little bit of background, you know, 
I think I was lucky growing up in Italy just because plants are still kind of part of the daily ritual and routine, especially for folks who live a little bit outside of cities. And so growing up, particularly being able to hang out in my grandmother's house, kind of in the Alps in Italy, we would harvest elderflower, we would harvest mushrooms and bilberries, we'd make stuff, they'd like pour sorts of things in the water for kids at lunch, at dinner. And I never really thought of it much until coming back to my mom's homeland, which is Kansas City, I sort of felt something that I couldn't really put a finger on was missing from my life. <laughs> and at the same time, I started getting really into some concepts that I think are still really fascinating to me, which might be sort of under the umbrella of occult science, at least in the Western tradition, this idea of like telepathy and action at a distance and magic and, and you know, how from hermetic concepts of ancient Egypt all the way through sort of the Persian and Greco-Roman and European traditions, including folk traditions, all of this stuff was really boiling and bubbling inside of me and I was fascinated by it. And I realized that plants were a huge part of all of those traditions from the folktale to the hermetic magic. That's when it sort of clicked to me that, hey, when I was growing up, we were interfacing with these plants in a very intimate way on an almost daily basis. And now there's nothing like that here in Kansas City. So I said, well, maybe it'd be neat to kind of just start researching that a little bit and getting to know the plants that are here and getting to know how they incorporate into magical traditions. And so I started studying that, but it didn't really click fully for me because it was still feeling a little bit theoretical or in my head until I was, you know, literally sitting in a tree. So in direct contact with this amazing, you know, over 200 year old beech tree that I was way up high in the limbs of. And the struggle that I had been feeling around sort of chemistry, biochemistry and science, and then mythology on the other hand, and this missing element of my childhood and the esoteric knowledge that I was trying to figure out and this very nebulous stuff, it all kind of came together into this focused point that said, herbal medicine and the art and science of working with plants and mushrooms is the nexus of all these things. It's the nexus of biochemistry, mythology, folklore and fairy tale, and also these sort of magical, mysterious concepts that so intrigued me at the time. And when that all clicked, while I was being held in the arms of this tree, it really felt like a very important moment. And that if I didn't follow through on it, that almost the universe would be disappointed. I, it, it's very hard to describe. And it was one of the first experiences that then came with this very profound urge to follow through. And I've had a series of experiences like that since then, very simple ones from like, you got to take a left on the trail now while you're just wild harvesting and just following through on that, right? Um, to other more, you know, complex things involving my family and my friends and plants. Um, but I can trace it back to that moment in the beech tree and, and how it really helped resolve a lot of uncertainty and a lot of lack of clarity for me. And I think that was sort of the wand touching me on the forehead and saying herbalism is the way for you now go forth and mm -hmm. i've tried my best to do that since then i love all those themes coming together because that you could i don't know on paper maybe they don't seem like they're connected and but for you it was that moment of clarity and seeing that they are connected and i think that perfectly describes why i go to every single class of yours that i possibly can 
because it is mm. that weaving together of those things, even, you know, like studying the chemical nature of plants is not my favorite thing. And yet every time you teach about it, I take your class because you weave in so much more than that because it is all interconnected. It's not, you know, bisected and cut out in your world. It really is woven together in really beautiful ways. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that really motivates me or drives me, Rosalie, is I think something that motivates and drives a lot of us, which is how can we be inspired, engaged, and humans with agency on this planet, right? You know the moment when you see someone you love or see a beautiful sunset or find an amazing wild plant out in the forest. It's just this place of clarity and connection and meaning and purpose that then stimulates, at least for me, almost a state of flow and creativity that allows me to do everything that I think is is useful and important in my life. And like, that's really the motivating factor. But what I found is that plants have taught me more about how to do that than anything else I've experienced in life. And whether it's with chemistry or with mythology and folklore and fairy tale, the sort of tonic quality that plants bring to our lives that inspires creativity and flow, that's what I'm grateful for sort of every single day. And, and sort of describing that and putting a a finger on it, if you can, which you can't really because it's flowing all the time, but but still we can get, I think, an approximation. Helps me understand my processes, the processes of health and disease in a clinical context, the process of education and growth, um, and ultimately the process of flow and creativity, which I think are the foundations of health ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that was just such a beautiful example because I've I feel like you basically described why I'm an herbalist and why I wake up excited to be an herbalist every day. <laughs> and like you said, it is so very difficult to describe. And yeah. I think initially for me, you know, I, I was started on a more superficial level and it's been a beautiful deepening thing to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And like you said, the plants opening the way for this deeper connection and this kind of enriched life that I don't know, I'm sure it's possible to find in other ways, but in my life, that is definitely the plants that have, have opened that pathway. Yeah, I agree. And I agree it's possible to find it in other ways. One of the things that I'll say, however, is that plants and herbal medicine, and I include mushrooms there, of course, um, provide this chemistry of communion. You're not just engaging in a theoretical exercise or a meditative practice. You're actually putting things into your body that reinforce all of those threads that we might call spiritual or emotional or intellectual with with very real sort of wetware supporting threads right and, and that combination of the feeding of the spirit and the feeding of the intellect with the feeding of the soma that plants give i think is pretty unique so ultimately and, and this is something we see in clinical practice too it's like you can change people's minds without actually having to engage with their minds, but just by giving them tonic plants on a daily basis, their spirit softens, their attitude towards the world and themselves changes. It's it's remarkable to see. So mm -hmm. that reinforces to me that, again, we're on this path for a reason and it's a darn good one to be on. It teaches us a whole lot. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for so beautifully stating that. Now I'm very curious with that as like this backdrop, how did you choose Yarrow for our discussion today? Right. Well, so 
talking about tonic plants, you know, or in mushrooms, whether you're talking about adaptogenic roots or tonic berries and these amazing, you know, fungal allies that we have, yarrow is not one of those. Yarrow is this like pretty acute use plant. And it's one that you don't necessarily take every single day. Although I might in super teeny doses, right? Part of the reason is that especially fresh yarrow has a suite of chemistry, including Thujone that we probably don't want to expose our bodies to at high levels every single day of our lives. But that said, for short-term use and for its incredible versatility, I really honor yarrow as perhaps one of my, my very favorites. I think you can do almost anything with yarrow, especially if you're willing to work with its personality or sort of intangible qualities. But first and foremost, amazing vulnerary, right? One of the best wound care plants, if not the best wound care plant on the planet. There's others for sure, but yarrow is so common, at least in this part of the world, that I turn to it over and over again for wounds. It arrests bleeding and it does so with antimicrobial effect. It does it with secondary intention, so it prevents the formation of abscesses. And, and that's part of the reason I carry sort of powdered yarrow flowers with me almost anywhere I go, especially if I'm going out into the woods or something like that. It also is a digestive bitter, so it stimulates digestive function. It has the ability to relieve gas and bloating because of its volatile oil content. So it has a little bit of a carminative action. So it's a great sort of gut health remedy, right? And beyond that, it also is used for fevers as a diaphoretic to open up the peripheral circulation. And so for a constitution like mine, which tends to have a lot of fire and heat in it, I need to run to blow that heat off and I need to occasionally just take some yarrow to open up that circulation, open up those pores and, and blow that heat off. It's a great cardiovascular remedy too. So again, digestive health, great for wounds, great cardiovascular remedy. Its medicinal properties are amazing, but perhaps even more magically, its esoteric properties are also time honored and have been sort of held up by traditions across the world. And, and yarrow truly is native across the world. And if you look at it, for example, in the European tradition, which I'm most familiar with, yarrow, especially the first blooms of yarrow, which are just beginning, at least up here in Vermont, depending on where you are, it might already be blooming. But harvesting those and putting them under your pillow is thought to give prophetic dreams. And especially in some European traditions, prophetic dreams about, you know, romantic partners or the course of your sort of domestic life, um, but more broadly, just visions of the future by just putting the first yarrow flowers of the season under your pillow. And of course, in China, yarrow was not the first method for casting the I Ching oracle. The first method was supposedly looking at tortoise shells from the Yellow River that the Yellow Emperor looked at and saw these like hexagrams, these six lines kind of embedded in that tortoise shell. But before the common method that you see today, which is to throw coins, Chinese coins, to cast your six lines, the method of using yarrow stalks was used. And there's a couple of reasons I think for this. One is they sound really great, dry yarrow stalks, and, and they have this amazing feel while you're holding them in your hands that just like the sound and the feel of it shifts my consciousness. But beyond that, I think it's because yarrow is magical and helps you tell the future. So of course you're gonna use it as part of a divination oracle that helps you contextualize this moment in time and, and figure out what it's changing to and, and where you're moving with the flow of things. So, I mean, so many incredible things from yarrow, as well as its shining beauty in the field or in the garden, make this perhaps my, my most beloved ally. Hmm. Yeah, I feel the same about it. It grows wild everywhere around me and it's just about to bloom, like you said in Vermont as well. So 
it's one that just I love looking out on a field of yarrow and just thinking, wow, there's just so much beauty there and so much medicine and yeah, so much versatility. You mentioned, um, I want to go back on a couple of things. You mentioned about using the powder as for wounds and taking that when you're hiking. That is one thing, you know, I often wonder like people who don't have plants in their life, like what do they do without plants? And I think that a lot about hikers, you know, it's like if they're just going to know one plant, then yarrow might be the one to know whether you're out like on a day trip or, you know, backpacking because it's so, like you said, such a powerful vulnerary herb. Do you have stories of using it as a powder or, you know, just descriptions of using it as a powder or as a fresh herb for wounds specifically? Yeah, so many, right? And first of all, let me start with this. I've never seen it fail at preventing an infection and treating a wound, even really big gnarly wounds with one exception. There was an herb student who was skinning roadkill um, and she's amazing what she does with animal pelts and also as a hunter here in Vermont. But skinning that, her knife slipped and it cut her on one of the knuckles of her hand. And of course the knife was, you know, in this roadkill that who knows how long it had been there. And so she did immediately put yarrow on it, but it still developed an infection and she had to treat it with antibiotics. But to me, considering the hundreds of times I've seen it work effectively, that one exception actually proves the rule, right? And it was a particularly gnarly example. I started with yarrow just saying, hey, I live in Vermont. If I'm hiking, I bet you I can find yarrow within five minutes, right? No matter where I am. And generally speaking, because these forests have been so sort of, in some cases, abused by humans for a few hundred years, you often can find meadows and sort of very young scrub where yarrow is growing. And that works in Vermont. But what I started to notice is that in different parts of the world, that's just not the case. And so being prepared and having a little yarrow with you is actually really important. But that wasn't the the thing that actually led me to carrying my yarrow powder with me wherever I go. It was working with friends of mine who were chefs and chefs, you know, cut themselves all the time, unfortunately. And there's all sorts of stuff that they'll put on. And, you know, bleeding is a big issue, of course, in the kitchen. And people would walk around with like, you know, these latex things on their fingers that would like fill with blood and like, anyway, it's a disaster. So turning them on to yarrow and them not having the opportunity to have fresh yarrow that they could chew and immediately put on that cut led me to just develop this incredible simple remedy, which is just dried yarrow flower and leaf powder. And I would give it to them in little pouches. They'd keep it in the kitchen and they just immediately stuff it right in the wound. And, and it stops bleeding so fast that it ends up just making their life so much easier. Another story is working with friends of mine who are stonemasons, particularly this one guy who's a, who's a good friend of mine. You know, he works with rock all day long, so inevitably he's going to bash his hands from time to time. And, you know, this guy is not only an amazing stonemason, but also grows all of his own potatoes for his whole family for the entire year, cans all his tomatoes and dilly beans. So, like, really has his hands in the soil, understands plants and plant agriculture and homesteading and sustainability. But his remedy of choice when he bashed his hand doing stonemasonry, duct tape. So he would take duct tape and wrap it around his finger or wherever he'd cut himself. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, everything you eat is organic and homemade. And, and you're putting duct tape on this like open cut with its weird adhesives and who knows what else. Let me talk to you about yarrow, which is corn. It was a plant that he knew. 
because it grows in his meadow too, mm -hmm. but he never really had understood the medicinal potency of it. So I made him a little bit of a yarrow pouch, yarrow powder pouch as well, and he would use it and apply it directly. And what he told me is that if he actually gets the yarrow powder on there and takes a break for just a couple of minutes, elevates wherever it is that the bleeding is coming from, it pretty much will stop it. And then he might have to put a Band-Aid on it, but he can quickly get back to work. And it's none of this sort of drama of the duct tape and blood and all this stuff. And so, so many stories, Rosalie, about this amazing plant from a wound care perspective. And then don't get me started how many times I've used yarrow stalks to, to you know, look into the I Ching and, and think about what the future might hold in my life or add it to cardiovascular support preparations or add it to, you know, with like peppermint and bone set and other diaphoretic herbs to formulas we might have for helping folks who have a fever. I love that you're this yarrow advocate for your people in your life. <laughs> I can just see, you know, like as people come into your life and you're like, hmm, how can I get Yarrow and them together? <laughs> yeah, well, especially if you hurt yourself, you know, you yeah. should be aware of this plant because it's it's so helpful. Yeah. Um, so the recipe that you shared with us, I love that it's really like whole plant medicine in that you're sharing how to powder the plant well so that people can take it with them and also using the stalks for the Yijing. I think we should talk about the Yijing a little bit because some people might not know about it. I was excited yeah. to see that come up in your notes because that um, this is the a book I bought when I was a teenager. It's a very simple translation. There's multiple translations out there. This is like a very easy to read one. And I've been consulting with the Yijing ever since I was a teenager. And I've never used Yarrow stocks and now I'm very interested in doing so. Yes. Well, so what do we mean by yarrow stocks? And when I was when I was first thinking about this, and I'll show you kind of how it ended up for me, but here are a couple of, you know, yarrow stocks that are dried from last year. So this is just, you know, a big garden yarrow. It doesn't usually grow this tall in the meadow, but it can get this tall in a garden. And so this is the part, you know, with the flower and the leaves that I would garble or strip from the stem. And then that's what you'd put in your coffee grinder or even in a mortar and pestle and grind to as fine a powder as you can. Then of course, pass it through a sieve. If you're putting this in wounds, you want it to be super powdery and not have big chunks, right? Not that it would be horrible, but it could be irritating. So if you pass it through a metal sieve, then it, it usually is fine enough powder that it's perfect for the application. But what you're left over with are these, these stalks, right? These dry stem pieces and they're, actually the exact thing you need for this I Ching casting. And the first set that I made, actually I have right here, and what you wanna get is 50 of these stocks, right? And so I love them because they were so tall and I just kept them this tall. And when you look at what the method looks like, it's a little complicated to hold them between your fingers when they're this long, right? Essentially what part of the method involves is counting out bundles and stashing them temporarily in your fingers like this while you're counting. And so when you have a bunch of yarrow stalks in your hand that are this long, things can get a little unwieldy. So they don't have to be that long. This is an example of a, a smaller bundle that I made more recently. So these are also the yarrow stalks, but they're just nice and short. So these are a lot easier to work with and keep between your fingers. But the point is you need 50 of them. And the process is pretty simple and it's iterative. So once you learn the basics, you know, it's just a bunch of repetition. That repetition takes time and the time includes these noises, right? Like, I don't know if you can hear what these stocks sound like, 
but they're so neat. Like when you separate them, when you put the bundles down on your table, it's almost like pickup sticks, that old game, you know, that kids used to play. And I sometimes wonder if that game kind of came from this whole process or not. But the process is relatively simple. The first thing you do is you pull out one single Yarrow stock and you just set it aside. That's the witness. It's going to watch the whole process. Your goal is to create six lines, right? For your hexagram, hexa means six. Each sort of oracular pronouncement of the I Ching is encoded into this six line diagram. And what I love about the I Ching compared, for example, to other divination systems like the tarot is that it doesn't just give you a static picture. It gives you potentially a hexagram that is changing into another hexagram. So it acknowledges the fact that like, we're not in a static experience as human beings. We're constantly flowing from, from one situation to another situation and things are always changing, which of course is why the I Ching is, is translated into the book of changes. So the point is to get to your six lines. Each line is either a strong line, a yang line, or a weak line, a yin line. And you know, those words, strong and weak, uh, they're not the best. Let's call them yang lines and yin lines. The yang line can be sort of fully ripe in its yangy, fiery quality to the point that it's about to change to yin. Similarly, the yin line can be so gentle and retreating in its yin-like quality that it's actually about to change into yang. Right. So there's four different outcomes that you can have for each line. You can have a stable yin, a stable yang, or a changing yin and a changing yang. And those have all been associated with numbers from the I Ching perspective. The yin lines are even numbers, six and eight, and the yang lines are odd numbers, seven and nine. And you might say, like, why six, seven, eight, nine? It has to do with either in the coin system or in the yarrow stock system, sort of the final number in this case of bundles of yarrow stocks that you have at the end of this process. So once you set your first line aside, the point is to try and come up with, do you have six, seven, eight, or nine bundles at the end? And it's a random process, kind of like coin tossing, but the randomness comes from not being able to actually count. You know, I have 49 here. I'm trying to divide it into two equal piles, but you know, I'm doing it by eye. So I'm probably not gonna get, you know, 25 here and 24 here. You set the piles down and then you take one from the left-hand pile, tuck it in your fingers, and then you start counting out this left-hand pile in bundles of four stocks. So you have your first bundle of four stocks and you set it down, your second bundle of four stocks, and you set it down, your third bundle, and you set it down, your fourth bundle, you set it down, and you just keep going counting by fours until you have a remainder that is either going to be one, two, three, or four. In this case, it's four. So there's my first one. I'm going to put that between my ring finger and middle finger and continue adding stocks to my hand. So then we'll just go through this process again, figure out what the remainder is, and put it in here. And then we will have sort of a set of piles of four that are left over down here. And it'll be a certain number. Maybe it'll be three. Maybe it'll be two. We'll do the same with this right-hand pile that we first divided. And we'll end up with a certain amount of piles of four at the end. Once all the remainders have been taken out, you add all the piles of four together, you're going to have six, seven, eight, or nine of them. And that will be your first line, right? If it's a seven, it's a stable yang line. 
If it's a nine, it's a strong yang line that's about to change to yin. If it's six, it's a weak yin line. It's about to change to yang. If it's eight, it's a stable yin line. And that's it. That's your first line. It probably will take you 10 minutes to get your first line. You have to do six of them. So the whole process, especially when you're starting, could take up to an hour. And there's great directions out there on the internet for this process that are very clear and straightforward. I also turn to this particular edition of the I Ching. For that, it really details the Yarrow stock process quite well. And what I love about this is that they don't actually translate it very well. They take each ideogram and just translate the ideogram from Chinese into standard English. So when you read it, it's like dream language, it sounds like. It's very bizarre. I can give you just a, a random of example. For example, here in this particular hexagram, which is hexagram 28, it says polarizing, fire stirring up, and also above, marsh stirring up, and also below. So the fact that it's translated directly from the Chinese makes it a little bit tricky to understand what they're talking about, but it also makes you really kind of get into the true original intent, I think, of the book. So I really love this edition, um, Rudolf Ritzema, I Ching, and, you know, they do get it into a mellower, more understandable version too, if you want, but this sort of raw translation of the Chinese always fascinated me, and it has a great Yarrow stock casting method in it. Fabulous. We'll, we'll include that book as well as the link that you'd given me for the Yarrow stock in the show notes and for Guido's handout for powdering the yarrow as well as creating the stocks. You can visit that at the show notes at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. All right. Well, I'm really excited to talk about your the projects that you're working on, but I also really wanted to just highlight this book, The Wild Medicine Solution. It's one of my favorite books of all time, and I still visit the book and find so much in there. Just today, I pulled out this section about this thing that is something I'm working on right now as a webinar. And I just found this highlighted sentence where you say, we should worry less about bad foods, toxicity, and fear-based reactions to what we eat, and more about providing the essential ingredients for optimal gut function. This is easily found in bitters. So thanks for that. I'm still finding so much out of this book. So for anyone who's not already familiar with the Wild Medicine Solution, I obviously highly recommend it. Thanks, Rosalie. That's really nice. And of course, DIY Bitters. You and I both share a passion for bitters. And DIY Bitters is a fabulous book. And I love the instructions in there about creating your own bitters. And the formulas in there are also very wonderful. And I'm so excited to hear about what you're working on right now. Yeah, well, DIY Bitters is more of a practical how-to kind of cookbook, and we were also trying to trick people who are into cocktails into maybe becoming herbalists. Maybe we had some success there. Wild Medicine Solution it actually set me on a path of inquisition that an exploration that that still isn't done, and and that's really kind of what I'm still working on now. So one of the ideas that that really drove me in, in writing the wild medicine solution was this idea that the ecology has its hand on our shoulders through plants. Meaning like you, in the quote you read, if we plug ourselves into the stream of chemistry, in this case, the stream of bitter chemistry that helps regulate our digestive secretions, our digestive motility and our metabolism and liver function, 
we are going to be able to handle a lot of the potential weirdness that modern Western culture throws at us every day with a lot greater grace. And the question there then is like, okay, why is it that bitter herbs like yarrow or dandelion or gentian have this effect on us? Is it some kind of like magical coincidence? Thinking about other tonics like hawthornberry, for example, we know it's so incredible for cardiovascular health. And how is it that this berry exists that is good for our cardiovascular health? And, and it's not just limited to hawthorn, bilberries, blueberries, a range of deeply pigmented berries with their high anthocyanin polyphenol content all have this ability to support our heart, heart and blood vessels. And so I started thinking more, you know, it's like these compounds that are good for our blood vessels are also pigments. These pigments signal to animals that the fruit is ripe. This is useful for the plant because you don't want to give away your fruit before your seed is ripe. And it's clearly useful to animals too, because all of the sugars that are nutritive for them are going to be present when the fruit is ripe, right? And the color of the peel of the hawthorn berry or the blueberry is that visual signal for our eyes to tell us it's time to eat it and then get nutrition and help spread the seed of the plants. But what about the fact that these pigments also have these sort of tending and supportive effects on our internal physiology? Is that just a random coincidence? Is it coevolution? I think that it's much more likely to be the latter, right? Animals who could better use polyphenols to maintain their cardiovascular health were probably more likely to be successful. But also, it's very likely that the cardiovascular system itself developed in the context of polyphenols and that the endothelial cells that line our blood vessels are waiting for that input from the natural world to be able to function properly. Put it in another way. We don't tend to think twice about saying, when I feel stressed, my brain sends a signal to my adrenal glands and a hormone called adrenaline comes out that has effects on cells. That all seems perfectly reasonable to us. But it seems a, like a little more of a stretch to say when my community or even myself as an individual are looking to maintain good cardiovascular health, the ecology secretes a chemical called a polyphenol through the organs of the plants, in this case berries, to help support the cardiovascular health of myself or my community. That seems a little weirder, right? Because we tend to think of me as a human and the hawthorn tree as a tree as being separate. But I think what I've learned from plants, Rosalie, is that we're really not. And that if you can take this perspective that the valley you live in, you know, up there, the, you know, Champlain Valley that I live in down here in Vermont, wherever it is that you live, whether it's an urban environment or a desert or a lush valley, that ecology itself, that region of the world has an identity of its own. It has agency of its own. And within it are things like microbes, animals, plants, humans, you name it. And all of those participants in the ecology almost act as organs within that ecology, kind of the way our adrenal glands or our guts or our hearts act as organs inside us. It seems reasonable for us that our brain and our heart communicate and support each other and balance each other. It seems less intuitively reasonable that the ecology balances itself through the use of these sort of eco-hormones that are secreted from one organ, the plant, into another organ, the human.
but I really think that's what's going on. So the crux of the project, I guess, is to try and define what tonic herbalism is. And it might seem like a dumb question or an easy question to answer, but I tell you, I have been struggling with it and struggling with it because tonic herbalism truly is a unique thing that plant medicine does. We don't have this in modern technological medicine. We wait for problems and we push back against them with strong drugs. No one is really talking about sort of tonification, building of resilience, building of sustainability through medicine. But that's exactly what plants and mushrooms do for us from an herbal medicine perspective. So how is it that that happens? Why is it that that happens? Why is it that even exists? These are the questions that I'm trying to answer. And the fodder for that or the data for that from a research perspective comes from my clinical practice where I have seen some really interesting things happen that involve relationships between plants and people or mushrooms and people. And the establishment of what we might call almost a new organism, which is an organism that extends beyond the human that I'm working with in clinic and becomes sort of a human plant hybrid. When people figure out that a plant remedy helps them, they start doing really weird things like growing that plant or making their own medicines or learning about fairy tales associated with that plant and mythology associated with that plant. The story I always tell is of a gentleman whose digestion was greatly improved by dandelion root tincture, just a really, really simple classic bitter, right? And when he came back into my office and said, hey, are those the same dandelions that grow in my lawn? And I said, well, yes, they probably are the same species. And if they're not, a lot of dandelion species are very interchangeable. You can use those for medicine. His response was, well, I better stop spraying Roundup on them, hmm. right? And, and so these weird things start happening that alter our relationship to the world. And that starts me thinking about agency and consciousness. Where did that guy's thought come from? Was it his thought or was it dandelion thinking through him? Or was it the ecology reacting to Roundup, thinking through him and rearranging the perspective of those organs, in this case, the human organ that is a part of the ecology. So my thought was, hey, if more people consumed more plants and mushrooms, we might not have the same attitude towards the environment and the ecology that we do, which is one of, I would say extraction and in certain cases, exploitation. And it's a very natural reaction. It's the exact same reaction that kids would have when presented with a bag of cookies, right? You'll just eat it, right? Eat it. And it's the same thing we see with humans being presented with cake. Eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it. So my argument here is you can eat your cake, but have some dandelion root beforehand. And what you'll find is that you won't eat as much cake. You'll have a more balanced relationship to your blood glucose. And similarly, in our extractive attitude towards nature, our mind is going to start to shift from consuming these plants. Now there's mechanisms that describe that, right? Whether it's through adjustment of the microbiome, which we know has an impact on our mood, whether it's through direct modulation of neurotransmitters from certain herbs, whether that be St. John's wort or Mokuna prurians, you name it, right? But more importantly, I think what it's pointing to and what I've seen from a clinical practice perspective is that it's getting the human being who consumes those plants to become enmeshed and entangled in the actual thinking process and agency of the ecology. And this raises a lot of 
thorny and interesting questions, right? What is consciousness? Is consciousness localized to me? Does it live in my head? If not, where does it live? How does it come to be? And in trying to answer these questions, I think the only reasonable explanation or understanding that I have been able to come to is that consciousness is a fundamental part of reality that may even predate matter and energy. And this in philosophy circles usually is put under the umbrella of panpsychism. This doesn't mean that there's necessarily little fairies inside every plant, although there might be. What it does mean is that there is a sort of universal consciousness field and that through encounter between different sort of aggregations of that consciousness, we build agency, we build creativity, and we do this in this measurable and understandable way. This is, again, something I've seen through clinical practice, right? And you see this with athletes who are developing a relationship to training programs. You see this with people who are attempting to overcome or develop a healthy relationship to a chronic disease process. It's sort of this like process of engagement and then ramping up of change and then stabilization. And then there's often another level that is reached and another plateau that is explored. And as we go through healing, working in clinic, right, we'll start from a place that might feel really uninspired and uncreative and worn down. And then slowly creativity begins to increase as plants start to come in and, and we start to entangle those plants into the consciousness of the human. You start to see creativity grow and, and spark increase. And I ultimately fundamentally believe be, that this is because we become and enmesh our consciousnesses into these broader consciousnesses around us, whether it's our family, our community, our garden, our bioregion, you name it. And as we do that, we tap into streams of creativity that support our own creative flow. And going back to what we were saying at the beginning, that I think is the true root of health. This ability to create, this ability to expand into new vistas, and also take care of ourselves. So this all sounds very nebulous. It all sounds very sort of woo-woo and wishy-washy. But one of the things that really has made me excited is that there actually are really well-defined ways of talking about these things in an objective and measurable way. And this is done through not looking at stuff, not even looking at energy. So setting aside matter, setting aside physical, tangible things, and looking at the flow of information. So this, again, like introduces a whole new way of looking at things. But I truly believe that looking at herbal medicine through a lens that is based on language and information helps untangle a lot of what seems confusing about what we were just talking about. So one way of thinking about information is useful stuff that helps us have agency, right? If something has no usefulness and doesn't help us alter our behavior or have agency, it has really no useful information to us. But if you think of, for example, our immune systems, our immune systems are sophisticated language readers. They're able to immediately tell you whether a cell is from me or not from me. And they're immediately able to tell you if there's a pathogen that they've seen before, 
And they're also able to tell you if there's a substance that may not be related to a pathogen, but that might be something worth expelling from the system or getting sort of excited about and creating a little inflammation around. And they do this all through the recognition of pattern-associated molecules. And, you know, we find these in plants and mushrooms all over the place, whether they're polysaccharides or proteoglycans. Um, these immunomodulatory constituents of medicinal plants and mushrooms are truly telling a story. And what's amazing about it, right, and we've seen this, you know, astragalus brings up immune function for folks who are experiencing frequent illnesses. It helps them be more resilient and have less frequent illness. It helps people who are convalescing from illness bounce back more quickly and more effectively. But for people whose immune systems are overactive, it does not overstimulate their immune system. It can be used in situations of autoimmune disease actually to good effect to help modulate immune function. So isn't that what a good story does? If I tell it to you, you might have a different reaction to it than if I tell it to someone else, because you're taking that information in, you're putting that into your context, and you are acting on it or having thoughts on it based on the combination of that information and your context. So this is exactly the same way tonic herbs work inside the human body, whether it's polysaccharides speaking a language of protein and sugar chains to the immune system, or whether it's polyphenols speaking to our genes, our DNA, through a language of gene expression switch modulation. This is some of the stuff I talk about in Wild Medicine Solution that really sort of excited me, but now bringing it into a broader, more overarching concept, which is Herbal medicine is language. It's language that speaks to our bodies at every single level of our physiologic existence. And our body takes those stories, takes that language and information, contextualizes it, and uses it to act, to accomplish change, to have agency. And in many cases, that agency is what? Greater stability and greater homeodynamic balance and a drive to dissipate more energy through that system more efficiently. And this, Rosalie, is where it really comes down to this mind-blowing crux for me, right? We've heard talk about how the universe is all going to hell in a handbasket, right? Over, over billions of years, we're all going towards this place called heat death, right? Because entropy is increasing across the universe. Things are getting more and more disordered. No teacups that are broken on the floor magically spring back up into a teacup on the table. And this always has seemed really depressing to me. Like, we're just getting worn down and eroded into dust. And you know what? That may be the case. But until we get there, some of the most amazing insights of modern physics have been that more complex structures dissipate energy more efficiently. So what does this mean? The goal of getting ground into dust gets accomplished more quickly and more effectively by more complex structures. An analogy of this is a radiator. If you have a block of iron and you pump heat into it, it's going to radiate heat out less efficiently than if you put a lot of complex folds in that radiator, right? That's going to radiate energy more effectively. It's going to take that hot water and turn it into heat in the room faster. So ultimately, what does this mean? There's this basic drive in life in order to grind everything into dust to create more and more complex, beautiful structures to better dissipate what we currently have right now, which is a bunch of energy aggregated into this star, right? That is attempting to dissipate into nothingness. Essentially, a planet with a thriving, diverse biosphere on it 
is going to dissipate that energy more effectively than a lifeless rock ever would. So as we bring in a greater diversity of chemical streams into our bodies, we feel more energized. We feel more creative. Why? Because we're dissipating energy more effectively. We're running more and consuming more calories. We're thinking more and coming up with amazing ideas. We are more engaged. We're more alive. We have more agency, more choice, more change that we can manifest in the world. And as we do this, we add our personal creative spark to this universal spark, right? which although we're all going over the next 13 billion years to this dust and, and heat death, while we're swirling, we're creating more and more amazing complex radiators to better dissipate the energy of the universe. So this idea that we're dissipating into nothingness and at the same time, life is generating and creativity is exploding are not mutually incompatible. In fact, there are two sides of the exact same process that has been going on in the universe from day one. And of course, if you read the I Ching and you read about what Taoists talk about, they talk about that, right? The way both grinds you into dust and is the source of all creative power. So tapping into plants allows us to better accomplish this sort of overarching single purpose of the universe, which is to smooth out the separation of matter and energy that happened at the very beginning, right? In so doing, we have all sorts of other creative things that we can engage with as we go, right? This is based on the physics work of Dr. Jeremy England at MIT, um, but it's also based on um, some of the consciousness research from folks like Mark Solms and others, and on the panpsychist philosophy of amazing folks like Dr. Freya Matthews, who works in Australia, and talks about things like the primacy of encounter over knowledge. So it's more important to put that herb in your mouth, right? Assuming you have a proper ID and that someone's with you who knows that it's safe, right? Exactly. Then it is to learn everything about it than to learn its name, than to learn about its chemistry. It's more important to just put it into your body, to engage with it. Why? Because we are embedded in a broader consciousness. And that consciousness speaks to us as part of it through plants, through mushrooms, through other people, through animals, through bacteria. And it's led me to realize that there's some really central things that I come back to over and over again that I think are true. One is that resonance exists in the world. And that when you resonate with something, your efficiency increases. And that that resonance is mediated by, at this particular level of reality in our lives, in our bioregions, by chemistry. And that that chemistry comes through what we put into our mouth and into our bodies. And that this is a key place where we can increase resonant efficiency, which I equate with health, in order to become more active, engaged participants in sort of the universal flow of energy, which we're all a piece of. It takes me to, you know, what I'm calling three tonic principles. One is that the more you can do to maximize diversity and biodiversity in your life experience, you know, the better. And we've seen this in botanical research. This amazing paper came out back in March of 2020, February of 2020, that talked about how fields that have a greater diversity of plants in them move energy through them in the form of photons and chemical inputs from the soil at a greater rate than fields that are monocropped. So they're moving that energy through and sort of dissipating and supporting life and diversity at a much greater level the more diverse they are. 
This to me means the field is more well. It's a healthier field if it's diverse and moving energy through at a greater throughput, right? It's also participating in the universal purpose more effectively. So that's one. Anything you can do to maximize diversity of relevant inputs is really important. And herbal medicine does that for us, especially in our lives in modern America, where our diets are actually very devoid of phytonutrients, right? Where the diversity of foods we eat has gone down dramatically. The second really important tonic principle, I think, is that you have to respect and trust the living system, whether that's your system as a being or whether it's the system of your family, right, or your community or the ecology or the planet. These systems, which can be described in information terms, have agency and consciousness of their own. And so if you approach them as a commodity or as a resource or as something inanimate that is not worthy of encounter, you are making a grave mistake. And this leads me to the third principle, which is focus on support over control. Anytime you can focus on support, you are going to do better because you're going to let that system be able to write itself, engage in its own creative process, find its own homeodynamic set point. And long story short, Rosalie, I believe that agency and consciousness and the power to change things, the power to be well, it resides in the small. It resides in the super small, not only in our cells or in our genes, but in the molecules that make those up, in the atoms that make those up, and in the quantum fluctuations that exist that create and stabilize those atoms. Top level processes, whether those are governments or my brain, they're only good at one thing, which is stabilizing and supporting things that work. But the agency, figuring out what works, that comes from the small. So the smallest things, right? The more of them you can bring into your life, the more creative agency you open your life to. And then you as a stabilizing circuit can help maintain a new relationship, right? So that gentleman won't spray Roundup on his dandelions, right? Once he's had that creative input from the dandelion and brought it into his life, now his brain, a high level stabilizing circuit is going to take all of that information and say, hey, I'm gonna have a lawn with dandelions now. I'm gonna help stabilize this process. I'm gonna create medicine for myself and on and on it goes. It happens inside our cells, it happens in atoms, right? And so looking at this from a quantum entanglement perspective and looking at things like the Schrodinger wave equation, collapsing the wave function, actually creating reality at the fundamental levels of reality. It is a relational process of engagement that entangles things outside of space and time. And when something new happens, it creates surprise, which leads to engagement, which leads to growth and creativity and a new stabilizing circuit is developed. So if you look into herbal medicine, you'll find that what I'm saying is totally not new. We use terms like energetics. We use terms like homeodynamism and homeostasis, if that word is still employed. We use words like tend the vital fire or the vital force. And I know people will poo-poo the idea of the vital force. And there is no such thing. You can't put a vital force in a bottle. But if you look at the way information flows and stabilizing circuits maintain flows of information and where creativity comes from in this information-based model, there's no other way to describe it except as a drive for vitality and creativity that is inherent in the second law of thermodynamics, is inherent in that process of dissipation. 
that we all are born into and that we all eventually will die into. But holy cow, what amazing swirls we will create between point A and point B. So that's what I'm working on. <laughs> wow, Guido, that was incredible. I don't know that I ever expected to hear the ideas of quantum entanglement and eating dandelion root in like the same thought process. And it's you the really same those two come together in a really interesting way. And yeah. that's why, that's why, because the consciousness field is universal and it transcends space and time. I can be in a totally different part of the world, have the same exact thought of my that my wife has at the exact same time because we're entangled. We're we are shared consciousness. That's why, you know, that person and, and anyone here who's listening, who's had a relationship with Dandelion, that's why you're resonating with that now, because we are all part of a shared consciousness, at least a little bit through Dandelion, right? And so these telepathic events, these moments of insight and resonance, they can happen and they can appear to transcend space and time because they're baked into the very deepest level, deepest, deepest level. Atoms are highly entangled. They're not going to fly apart. You know, but think about like a long-term relationship of love between two humans. That's just as deeply entangled. It's also not going to fall apart. It's going to continue to like create its own thing. My wife and I, yes, we're individual, but we're also one thing that has its own thoughts that at the same time come through both organs, me and my wife. Similarly, plants and us, we're the same thing. We often have the same thoughts. They just come through different ways, right? The dandelion's thinking and my thinking are different. But to see that we're experiencing consciousness at the same time and that my conscious edges blur into a field, to me is incredibly inspiring. It's humbling. And it helps me also understand things like justice in our culture. And why a culture can continue to subjugate humans because a culture has its own consciousness too. It has its own pattern. And because agency resides in the small, we as individuals can change that culture from one that is extractive and oppressive to one that is celebratory and creative. And I think plants are the key to that. I really, really fundamentally do because of that physical, tangible chemistry of communion, right? It's not an idea. You don't need to think about it. You just need to put it into your body and the magic will happen. I feel like it would be a really interesting thing to watch you like have a t-shirt that just says, ask me why I'm an herbalist and just, you know, walk down the street of like say Kansas city or some other place and, and hear that because just from a very practical level, so many people start herbalism because they have a problem for whatever reason, maybe they don't want to take a Western pharmaceutical or they don't like the answers there. And so they, they want the, the herb that will do the drug like thing. Uh, but without taking the drug thing, which yeah. is not a bad place to start in herbalism no. because it's a very natural. I mean, it's just like that is a, a major inroad. And then this conversation is just showing like how like that little thing just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And in my mind, I have this vision of like, you know, this like vision of like pharmaceutical pills on one hand and then like the meadow and the other and how both can be a path towards health ultimately how that like deeper supportive regenerative health is probably coming from the meadow i agree i totally agree and i i myself started with plants from the exact perspective you talked about i wanted something that would work for me whether i had an infection or whatever 
right? And also thinking about esoteric uses of plants, I wanted magical plants that would like help me get what I wanted, right? That has really been tempered. But I will also say like, I don't want to moralize about modern medicine or plant medicine or anything like that and say one is good or one is bad. We have this amazing system. We have this cultural consciousness that has actually led to a lot of prosperity and well-being for a lot of humans on the planet over the last, you know, 10,000 years. There's definitely issues. We can definitely do a lot better, right? But I don't want to necessarily say that, it, you know, we have to turn our back on everything we've learned. I definitely don't think that's the case. All I'm trying to say is that that experience you have of a plant helping with your headache, helping with a wound, helping with your mood, helping to make you well. Even if you're taking it in a drug-like way, and that's why plants are so amazing, you know, even a plant like yarrow, the experience you have is the first part of a journey that I call the gift cycle. And it is an initiatory experience, right? When you when a plant changes your life in a meaningful way, that is an initiation for you. You experience something new. And so what happens? Your information model of the world just got surprised. And that surprise leads to all sorts of things to happen in that information model to try and like rearrange and understand. And, and neuroscientists will argue that that process is consciousness. That process of being surprised, being mindful, being attentive is consciousness, right? So immediately plants wake up your consciousness, bring you into the present moment, you know, whether it's incense or wound healing and initiate you. The next step is you got to follow through. You got to open your ears. You got to open yourself up to the maximum amount of relevant stimuli, right? That first tonic principle. And not all of those stimuli will resonate with you, but you will find that some will. And then you have to gather and engage with what, you know, Lewis Hyde calls the labor of gratitude, right? You're so grateful for that initiatory experience. You're so grateful to have this new vista opened to you. You damn well better follow through, right? Just like we were saying earlier, pay attention, learn what resonates, and then do the work, right? If it means growing dandelions or planting lemon balm in your window box or learning how to make that tincture, right? You gotta do that work. You gotta engage in that labor of gratitude. And as you do that, you're encountering. You're going through that encountering process, which means your consciousness is now bleeding out into the consciousness of the plants you're working with and the ecology you're working with and the medicine making lab that you're building and your herbal library that you're building. All of this is now a system with its own information and stabilizing circuits that you are a part of, that you're involved in, and that is also changing you. So as you go through the labor of gratitude, you become changed. And so the fourth step in the gift cycle is what? You get to give a gift back now into the world, initiate someone new, grow a new herb garden, whatever it is, you will know what the gift is when your creativity overtops your ability to contain it. And that creativity overtopping, that feeling of inspiration and, and thriving engagement and wellness, to me, is the definition of health. It's what I am trying to pursue in my life and trying to encourage in other human beings. And I could not do it without plants and mushrooms for all the reasons we've talked about. I have this sense, Cleto, of you being held in that tree when you were younger and having this kind of input from the ecology around you. And as you said, you you took that and ran and it seems like this is just this continued search for, you know, that original input that you had gotten. Yeah. It took me and is running. I'm not <laughs> quite sure what it is yet, but it's more than me. 
Yeah. And I don't think I can pull myself up by my bootstraps if I want to be creative. I need other people. I need plants. I need ecology. Without it, there just isn't creativity and life. Mm -hmm. But thank you. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. It makes me think of I'm taking a nature writing class right now. And every day I go out and write. And I go out without any expectations. And it does just feel like I'm not writing. I'm just listening. And then my hand is is translating, you know, what it what is coming through on a level that I can understand anyway. Yeah. Well, I do have a last question for you for season four. Although in some ways I feel like you might have already answered it, but I'm gonna throw it out there anyway. And that is what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you first started working with herbs? Yes. What I know now is that. Herbs are sensitive to how you prepare them and to the type of human you put them in and to what's going on in that human. Herbs are exquisitely sensitive to context, particularly the tonic herbs. To expect them to work in the same way across all people every time is an expectation that was inside me at the beginning, but I think it came from modern tech medicine with this idea of, you know, you take a drug, it's going to do a thing always, every time. And so a, a sensitivity to the context, and again, respecting the system that we're introducing the herbs into has really done a lot for my clinical practice, which at the very beginning used to be, you got this problem, you take this herb. And now, you know, you listen to folks like Paul Bergner, you listen to folks like Leslie Tierra and Michael Tierra, Kat Meyer, they talk about energetics and being aware of the energy of the person and the energy of the plant and the remedy. And exploring that and thinking about that is what first broke me from that idea of like, you have a problem, you take the plant and you always take that same plant for that same problem. So I really appreciate that. And then just seeing it in clinical practice over and over again, and starting to explore some of these ideas of, of distributed non-local consciousness, reinforce that to me even further, right? The context of the system, you know, whether it's a simple system like pro a disease, a human and a remedy, right? Or it's a much more complex system like socioeconomic context, family context, cultural context, human disease remedy being aware and sensitive to those contexts and being mindful of them and describing them in whatever language makes sense to you is crucially important, I think, for being effective. And I didn't know that at the beginning. I really just thought herbs were like interesting alternative drugs. <laughs> and even though the old word druga in Dutch means dried plant, we think of drug as a, something very different, I think. And, and it's it did me a disservice at the beginning to just think that herbs were drugs that I could pick. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I went through that same journey. I was actually listening to a talk with Leslie Tierra talking about garlic that like, you know, blew that open for me of just, you know, how different we react to garlic and you can't expect the same things for garlic. Even the way you prepare garlic dramatically changes the context and how it acts within us. So yeah, so I was on a similar journey and I really appreciate that answer. 
Well, thank you so much, Guido, for sharing all of this with us. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this develops and what you formally put out into the world. And it's just been so much to think about today. I'm just really excited for it all. Thanks for letting me speak about this. And again, I want to reinforce that the things we talked about are nothing new for herbalists and for indigenous folks who practice traditional forms of medicine. This is like basic 101 being a human. So I appreciate I appreciate your interest, but you know as well as I that that this is we're just re-uncovering and re-describing stuff that plant people have known for a really long time. That, that is so true. And I think some of the most important work we can be doing right now is to uncover that and find it deeper within ourselves because there has been somewhat of a a wall between certain humans and this greater ecology and even this idea that humans are separate from nature as a cultural context and which is I think so important for us to be figuring that out right now of how do we get past that cultural context and there are so many all the stuff you talked about made me think of like forest bathing as it traditionally comes out of Japan or Suzanne Simard's work uh, looking at the mycorrhiza and, and the trees and that landscape speaking and there's these like in there you know there's like these little hints and we're getting these ideas and understanding them but I feel like there's so much it's kind of like this like lessening of just like opening ourselves to seeing this in much bigger context because it's kind of unending in its depth really so there's a price to pay there's a price to pay Rosalie and that is you have to be willing to to say that your free will is not 100% free and it doesn't matter whether you engage with plants or not that is simply the case right? right if the consciousness field is universal and our edges are not well defined yes we're not completely determined there's no way that that's the case we all have agency and creative power but we also are controlled and our behavior is modified by processes that we sometimes are not even aware of whether those are cultural processes ancestral memories and family memories or the type of food we eat and the type of bugs that live in our gut for Pete's sake, right? Mm -hmm. So the price to pay, and I, it's totally worth it for me, right? To say like, I'm an organ of the universe. And sometimes the universe is going to make me do things that maybe I wouldn't really totally want to do, but that's okay. It's totally worth it for me in terms of prices to pay. But I think it's tough for folks to say, and particularly in the Western culture where the value of individual autonomy and liberty right, is so, I would say, lionized, it's going to be difficult for folks to be able to say, hey, not only am I not separated from nature, but my attitude that I am separated from nature leads me to treat it like crap all the time. And as a result, that's actually going to end up hurting me. And I don't even know it or understand it fully yet. And if it's not going to hurt me, it's going to hurt my kids. And hurt may not be the right word, right? I joke around, people talk about artificial intelligence potentially controlling our lives one day. Y'all, it, it is controlling our lives right now through these little boxes that we hold in our hands that dictate our behavior and agency. And one time as I was writing, Rosalie, I kid you not, right? I look at a lot of research papers online because physics, biochemistry, herbal therapeutics, great research. Google starts suggesting research papers to me. And I'm like, oh, that's a really good one. Thank you, Google. So who's writing this book? <laughs> and, and think about it in another way. So then are vitamin water and highly processed enriched foods 
part of the way the World Wide Web is reshaping human physiology to be better able to engage with a screen long, long, long term. Hmm. It's hmm. a system. It has homeodynamic stabilizing circuits. It maximizes its diversity. It's evolving. It uses us as organs. You kid yourself if you think you're completely autonomous from that type of influence. Mm -hmm. So all I ask is, let's bring in this other influence, right? That has been around for, you know, since before we were humans and see what it has to say too. Let's make sure plants have a seat at the table as we move forward into this virtual world that we're creating. Mm -hmm. Not moralizing either way. Mm -hmm. I love that that's a message that I've heard from you in so many ways when it comes to phytochemicals and just increasing the diversity within our diet, within our lives, and just that adding in to our lives and not like taking on yeah. the role of vilifying anything outer, but really just thinking about taking in. And even as I think about the like liberty and wanting to, you know, that lioness of individualism and just thinking, oh, like I, there's, I do not have to fight against that. I just have to keep sharing dandelions with the world. I, I think that's true. Well, thanks again, Guido. It's been such a pleasure and I really look forward to your upcoming book. Thanks, Rosalie. And I'm always really impressed and grateful for the work that you put out into the world and the simple, clear and beautiful way that you make herbs approachable for everyone. Um, I've told you this before, but I think it's amazing, beautiful, and I'm so appreciative. Oh, well, thanks, Guido. You're one of my herbal heroes, so I, I love hearing the compliments. <laughs> well, thanks again. For the listeners, don't forget to head over to herbswithrosaliepodcast.com to get free access to Guido's instructions for processing fresh yarrow into powder and divination stocks. Also available are the complete show notes, including the transcript. You can also visit Guido directly on Twitter, his handle is herbalist, and his website, aradical.blogspot.com. I deeply believe that this world needs more herbalists and plant-centered folks. I'm so glad that you're here as part of this herbal community. Have a beautiful day. Hey, thanks again for spending your valuable time with me today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. And if you're a new listener, thanks for checking out the show. And don't forget that you can find all the recipes, links, and show notes over at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. While you're there, you can subscribe and get updates when new episodes release and even submit your requests for future podcast episodes. The world needs more people who are connected to the earth and the healing gifts of plants. I'm so glad that you're here for this adventure. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Rising Appalachia for the use of their beautiful song, Resilience. Listen to more from Rising Appalachia at risingappalachia.com.